Welcome to OtoMentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. This is Episode 9, Choosing a Fellowship in Otolaryngology, the Laryngology Edition. My guest today is Daniel Fink. Dan is originally from Miami and graduated from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He completed residency training at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary through the Harvard Medical School program. He then went on to pursue a laryngology fellowship at University of California, San Francisco. He decided to return to his southern roots and join the academic department at the Louisiana State University, New Orleans, after fellowship. We were then lucky enough to steal him away to join our faculty in Colorado. Dan is an unapologetic nerd with a terrific sense of humor and a fabulous teacher of all things upper airway to our learners. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you decide to do otolaryngology as a specialty? I actually fell into otolaryngology accidentally. I thought I was going to be a trauma surgeon, and I wanted more time to study for my shelf exam for general surgery during my surgery rotation. I was told by my friends that ENT stands for Easy Nights and Tennis. Therefore, if I did that rotation, I'd have more time to study for my shelf. Well, I did the rotation, and I loved it. I ended up coming early and staying late every day. I did not get any extra time to study for my shelf exam, not because they put any pressure on me to stay late or come early. I just loved what was happening and fell into it from there. So how did you do on your shelf exam? There was a lot of studying and not so much sleep in the week or so after my ENT week, but uh, pretty well, actually. Good. All right. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So then you got to residency, and then how did you decide you wanted to be a laryngologist? Again, for me, it was just the work. I was lucky enough to have a really great mentor at Mass Ioneer who really explained things in a way that made sense to me and let me get involved with a lot of surgical procedures as well as in-office procedures very early on. And for me, a big part of it was the ability to give somebody function back. So the other thing I really liked to do was head and neck cancer surgery, but it was always very frustrating to me that these patients would have these very difficult functional outcomes after these big, you know, somewhat heroic resections versus when they underwent, for example, a thyroplasty or an endoscopic zankers, they would have these elegant surgeries and then they would go from somebody who couldn't communicate to somebody who could phonate without difficulty or somebody who couldn't swallow solid foods to somebody who could have a steak without a problem. And that really drew me into it. Yeah. At what point during your residency did you decide on laryngology? I decided during my third year. Okay. And then how did that timeline work for applications and matching? So that worked out pretty well because deciding during my third year, I was able to start getting my ducks in a row for applications, which take place uh, in the earlier part of the fourth year, which is challenging for some people because if they decide they like laryngology later, or if they're not exposed to laryngology till later, getting your ducks in a row ex post facto can be a little bit of a challenge. But I was lucky enough to kind of stumble upon it early, get into it early, and then was able to get everything organized for the application process in a timely fashion. How competitive is laryngology as a fellowship? It's an interesting question. There are a lot of laryngology fellowships available now, but they have different flavors. 
So for example, some laryngology fellowships are much more heavy on treatment of dysphagia, while others are more treatment on the professional voice, while others do a bit of everything. Some have even somewhat of a cancer focus. So while most folks who want to apply can get a laryngology fellowship, if you're, for example, somebody who knows that you're really interested in treating professional voice, that may narrow down somewhat the number of fellowships that you would be really genuinely interested in doing. What was your fellowship like? My fellowship had sort of a focus on professional voice, but one of the reasons why I chose it and one of the reasons I liked it is I really like doing all the aspects of laryngology. I love treating voice. I love treating swallowing. I love treating airway stenosis, and I like doing laryngeal cancer as well. And we did all of the above in my fellowship, and I'd like to think we did them all pretty well. So it was an obvious choice for you when you interviewed? I had two fellowships that I really liked, and both of them covered a broad swath of laryngology, and both of them I felt that I clicked pretty well with the fellowship director, and then it ended up being the match that decided it for me. So that was kind of nice because it took the decision out of my hands. What factors during your application really helped you to match, do you think? That's a great question. I don't know if I know the answer to that fully since I wasn't on the other side of the table, but I think the key things were that I had publications uh, that demonstrated an interest in laryngology specifically and strong letters of recommendation from laryngologists saying that Dan is committed, Dan is very interested in this, Dan does these things very well. And I think that a lot of laryngologists, laryngology being kind of a small and tightly knit circle, really appreciate getting a letter from somebody they know and trust saying that this person is legitimate. It tends to carry a lot more weight than when they get a letter from somebody they don't know, I think. So do you feel like part of that community now, like when you go to meetings, you see all the same people you interviewed with? How does that evolve? I still feel a little bit like a kid at the grown-ups table, to be honest, but I definitely feel like a part of that community. I feel comfortable talking to a lot of those people. I've shared patients with a lot of those people as patients travel, going both ways, and I've felt confident enough in my knowledge of the literature and what I've seen in my own practice that I don't believe everything all of those people say anymore. So I feel like I'm more like I belong at the adult table now, and I do feel like a part of that community. I have started writing letters to those people for some of our trainees, which has been a little surreal, but also very fun. Yeah, it comes full circle. It really does. So how many years are you out from fellowship? I am now five years out. Okay. So yeah, so you're starting six. Six. Okay. So you're coming into your own as far as your comfort level. Absolutely. Yeah. So what skills or procedures that you did during your fellowship specifically did you improve upon the most versus skills and procedures in laryngology that you would do as a resident? So a lot of what I did in fellowship was almost like a master course, you might say, where when I was a resident, I could very confidently do a direct laryngoscopy and expose almost anybody, and I could take a lesion off. But during my fellowship, I think I learned how to expose people a little less traumatically, a little bit more smoothly, and take lesions off in a little bit more of an elegant fashion, so to speak. And then there's just a sort of range of techniques. So my residency, I learned from 
two people, one of whom was kind of in the Boston method and school of thought, and another one of whom was Andy Blitzer trained and had that sort of Blitzer bent to everything he did. And then I went out to fellowship with a Vanderbilt trained person. And so now my current practice is sort of an amalgamation of all of those different things based on what appeared to me to work the best in each situation, because there's definitely different approaches to the same problem, all of which work to one degree or another. And so getting exposure to that whole Vanderbilt sort of school of thought was a completely different and new experience. And so there were some techniques in there in terms of the way they do thyroplasty and retinoid adduction, for example, that was very different from anything I had seen as a resident. And what was your favorite part of your fellowship? What did you enjoy the most? That's tough. There were a lot of great parts of fellowship. So the best part of fellowship was that I got to start just doing laryngology and I didn't have to pretend to want to be an otologist anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, and then really kind of taking those steps where I was going from being a chief resident who was good at laryngology to somebody who was going to be an academic laryngologist and over the year really getting my hands into it and getting my comfort level up to it and learning all the little tiny tips and tricks that I think separate a good surgeon from a great surgeon and the surgeon I want to be and really kind of elevating my pathway. That was sort of the most fun was doing those cases and doing the cases where the my fellowship director would just look at me and smile and say, good job. And he wouldn't touch the patient the whole time. And then I would knew that, you know, I had done this surgery up to his exacting standards. And that was great. Yeah, I'm sure that was a gratifying experience when Absolutely. you reached that level. So when did you start thinking about jobs? And the second part of that is, did you know that you wanted to be in academics or did you look at private practice jobs also? I started looking at jobs probably four months into my fellowship or so, which may have been a little early. I tend to be a little type A in all things. <laughs> like all doctors, yeah. Uh -huh. Including job search. <laughs> and I interviewed for academic and private jobs. I knew that I wanted an academic job, but I also knew that there were a finite amount of academic jobs. And I didn't want to take an academic job if I didn't like the job. I was lucky enough to have some great interviews and get a few good job offers and be able to take an academic job that was where my heart was that really kind of fit me and my skill set and what I wanted to do. Because you were in Louisiana before you came to Colorado and saw the light, right? <laughs> so how was, <laughs> how was that first job? So my first job was wonderful. I was very lucky to have a wonderful senior partner who taught me a lot, most specifically about laryngeal cancer. My first couple months being in attending, I almost did a mini fellowship in laryngeal cancer resections with him. Uh, and he was very, very generous with his time. That is still much appreciated to this day. It was in a very warm and congenial department. Uh, in the collegial department. And I got to do a lot of good work. I got to do a lot of cases. Uh, Louisiana, for the record, has statistically significantly higher rates of smoking, not only than the rest of the United States, but even compared to the rest of the South. Hmm. So if you want to treat leukoplakic lesions of the vocal folds, it, it's a high target environment, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You're going to find a lot of pathology there. 
So I got to do a lot. I got to operate a lot and I got to work with some really great people. And how did you decide that that was the job you wanted? It was a bit of a gut feeling. And then it was a lot of weighing of pros and cons and a few sleepless nights. But in choosing an academic job in laryngology nowadays, some places will want to let a laryngologist do the full breadth and width of the field. Some places want a laryngologist who really focuses on one or two aspects of laryngology only. And after my fellowship, having done so much, I really didn't want to be pigeonholed and have to do only one particular part of laryngology, even though I liked all parts. I wanted to do all parts and get my hands into it and really learn as much as I could and see what would take my fancy. And one of the things that really drove me to Louisiana was that they were very open to me practicing the full gamut of laryngology. And that would be because the person who's already there or people, laryngologists who are already there, have a niche themselves and they don't want you to encroach on their niche. Is that what generally drives that? It seems to be the case that that's it. Yeah. Okay. Do most laryngology fellowship trained otolaryngologists pursue academic or private practice, do you think? I think that's a shifting answer. So five years ago, it was largely academic with You'd find the occasional private practice laryngologist out there, but that was sort of a rare animal. And now I think it's becoming more and more common to have people going into private practice from laryngology fellowships. What do you think the reasons for that are? Partially, I think it's job availability. So, you know, laryngology as a field kind of blew up and suddenly everybody wanted a laryngologist and there was a glut of academic jobs for a while. But now a lot of places have their laryngologist or their laryngologists, like we have three here at CU, Mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily have the volume or the desire to have another. So if you're coming out of your fellowship, well, you need a job somewhere. And if there is no academic job, well, you got to work. Yeah. If you had to do it again, would you have gone to the same fellowship? Would you still do laryngology? I would definitely do laryngology. Am I allowed to tell a funny anecdote? Absolutely. So I had a little bit of a reputation as a resident during Grand Rounds for falling asleep. Okay. And we had a visiting laryngologist giving a lecture during Grand Rounds. Fascinating lecture. It was great. I don't know how anybody could fall asleep in that, but apparently some of my colleagues did who were not that interested in laryngology. I didn't. And one of my co-residents looked at me and just said, you are lit up right now. You are really fascinated by this stuff. And usually you'd be full on asleep by this point in the lecture. (laughs) And honestly, I still kind of feel that way. I love laryngology. I just love the science of it. I love the procedures. I don't know that I could see myself doing anything else. Okay. That's a solid answer, I think. What do you like best about laryngology as a subspecialty? You alluded to this a little bit in the previous Mm -hmm. couple minutes, but what do you like the, the most? My favorite thing is just restoring function. Mm -hmm. It's just so fun. And when you get somebody who just, they can barely communicate because they have a lateralized vagal paralysis vocal fold and you move that vocal cord over, you get them a nice strong voice and, you know, they're just so happy. That's a good day at the office for me. Or you take a patient with airway stenosis who can't go up a flight of stairs. You take them to the operating room, you get them opened up. They're in the recovery room. They're still a little wheezy from the anesthesia. 
and you ask them to take a deep breath in and they realize that that strider noise is gone and they just get that big smile on their face. That's the best. Yeah. It's, it's significant quality of life improvement, sometimes life or death too, because of the airway. But a lot of the procedures that you do are a huge quality of life booster. You have two adorable young daughters. If one of them came to you in 20 to 30 years <laughs> and said, Dad, I really want to be an otolaryngologist, what would you say? I would be ecstatic. One of my daughters is very detail-oriented and the other one isn't, so I'm pretty sure I know which one would do it if one of them's going to do it. <laughs> okay. But I think it's a great career. I know that there's stuff we have to deal with and there's frustration and we honestly have no idea what medicine, especially from a business standpoint, is going to look like in 10 or 15 or 20 years. But I think if you got into this for the right reasons, that you love taking care of patients, you love making people better, not because you want to drive this car or own that house, then the rest of the stuff is ultimately going to take care of itself. I'd be really happy if they found that joy. And if they find that joy in whatever job they choose to do, I will be really happy. But it'd be cool if it was an otolaryngologist. <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to add? And honestly, the one thing I would say for people, if you're looking for a fellowship, is to trust your gut a little bit. A lot of having a successful fellowship is getting on well with your fellowship director. If you and them seem to click from a personality standpoint and you're going to work well together, you're going to learn a ton from them. And it's not a one-year relationship. So when I am have a patient that I have no idea what to do with, I and honestly everyone I know still calls their fellowship director and ask them like, well, I never saw anything like this the year I was here with you or in the X number of years since. What do I do? Um, and there may or may not be a great answer, but that's a relationship that just keeps giving back. And fellowship directors, I mean, God bless them because they have these stable of people that are just harassing them like me. And there are these sources of wisdom for all of us. And if you can have that person in your life as you go through, because that first year out, I don't know what your experience was, but my first year out, I spent a lot of time trying to figure things out on my own and trying to figure out how I did things for myself. And there were a lot of calls back to my fellowship director going, well, this is not quite like anything I've seen before. What would you do with this? Or how would you approach that? And if you have that, it just makes life a lot easier. Yeah, I agree. I think the first year out of residency for me it was residency because I didn't do a fellowship. But that first year when you're responsible, that's the hardest year. You think residency is the hardest year, especially the second year is traditionally a very tough year. But that sixth year <laughs> is actually probably the toughest. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Dan. My pleasure. If you like what you just heard or didn't, please go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There you will find a link to a brief survey so I can improve the quality of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate your help.